Indeed, there is no one like Christ. And we need to be reminded of that. To be reminded that he's not just one option among many. That he is indeed the king. That all are to bow their knee before him. All upon this globe owe their allegiance to him. And so we want to humbly do that as we gather. As we approach God's word this morning, bow with me as we ask for the Lord's assistance as we come to his word. Almighty Father, we come in humble adoration before you. We confess that we are weak, we are often distracted, that sometimes your word is hard to understand, but we ask that your spirit would illuminate it to us this morning. May we see Christ, may we see his beauty and his glory, and Father, may you help us to assess our own lives in light of who Jesus is. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, there are many things that divide humanity, that cause division within people. Our nation, the last several years, and really our world, has seen many of those things bubble to the surface that cause division between two parties. In fact, division seems to be a goal of major influencers of our nation and our world. They want to see more people divided, more people at odds with one another. And many of these divisions are wrong, are bad, and yet there are some divisions that are good. Some clear lines between two parties or two things are helpful. The division between Good and evil is good. The division between truth and lies is good and right. You know, when we think about Jesus Christ and his ministry and what he came to do, we often don't think about division as one of his goals that he set out to accomplish. We want to have a rosy picture of Jesus in which he came to promote love and called people to love. And there's a sense in which he definitely did do that. But as we'll see in our passage this morning, that picture of love is not the only thing, does not encapsulate all that Jesus sought to accomplish when he came to earth. He came to divide, he says. He came to divide families, even. And that division is all hinged upon how people respond to Jesus Christ, how they respond to his ministry and his person, how they respond to him will determine their eternal destinies. And in that is the division. And so I encourage you to open your personal copy of God's word this morning to Luke chapter 12. If you're not there already, Luke chapter 12, we are continuing our exposition of the gospel of Luke this morning, we find ourselves in the last section of Luke chapter 12. Throughout this chapter, through a variety of subjects, Jesus seems to continually bring it back to the final reckoning one day, a final reckoning that everyone must face in that final day. 
in which the righteous will be rewarded, in which the wicked will be punished, and that our lives today are to be lived differently in light of that final reckoning. How we look at other people and whether we fear man or fear God is determined by how we view that final reckoning. How we use our resources in the here and now, our money, will be determined by how we view that final reckoning. Either we'll be like the rich fool who believes that there is no final reckoning coming and we can spend it all for our pleasures now, or we do as Jesus says and lay up ourselves treasures in heaven, recognizing that we will be richly rewarded far beyond our wildest dreams in that final day. And so we, last time we were in Luke, we looked at Jesus' exhortation to be ready, to be ready for his return, that when he comes back, he is going to come and either reward those who have been faithful or punish those who have been unfaithful. And so our ministry and our lives and our families and our jobs, all of these things are to be governed by this view towards eternity, this view towards that final reckoning. And in our passage this morning in verses 49 through 59, Jesus continues that theme. He calls the nation to recognize their need to reconcile with God before it's too late. You see, Israel thought that they were God's chosen people. We have a covenant with God. Back with Abraham and Moses and David, we're God's chosen people. We're special. We are different than all the other nations of the earth. Those pagans out there, they've got nothing on us because we are God's chosen people. Yet the shocking reality is that Jesus is here as God's chosen representative to shake them loose and to recognize you are not right with God. There might be a covenant back there that established you as a people, but you spiritually are not at peace with God. You're actually at enmity with him. And so let's read our passage this morning. Follow along as I read verses 49 through 59 of Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Must he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison? I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. 
Friends, as we study these words of Jesus this morning, we're gonna see four duties, four duties that drive us to examine our spiritual condition in light of that final reckoning. We're gonna see four duties that drive us to examine our spiritual condition in light of the final reckoning. Jesus and his message divides humanity into two groups. The question is, for each one of us, what group are you in? Whose side are you on? A question that no one else can answer but yourself. So let's look first at the first duty that we see in this text, and that is remember accountability is coming. Remember accountability is coming. And we'll see this in verses 49 and 50. Verse 49 begins rather abrupt. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. It's a declarative statement about his mission. He says, I came to cast fire. The first one thing to note here is to recognize subtly that Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth. I came to the earth, which implies the preexistence of Christ, that before he was born by the Virgin Mary upon this earth, that he existed prior to that, and that he came to earth with a, a, a certain mission in mind. And so this is a, a subtle affirmation of his preexistence. But what comes through clearly is that there's a certain mission that Jesus has. He came for a purpose, and that purpose includes judgment. Reading about fire, we can't pass over the fact that all throughout the scriptures, fire is used by God to reference his judgment, to reference his anger. We even speak about anger in terms of fire, right? They're burning anger. That person was lit up. We use this terminology to describe our anger and so true with the wrath of God towards sinners. A few examples from the Old Testament. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 18 says this, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed, for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Isaiah 66, verses 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Finally, Nahum, verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So this metaphor of fire coming to the earth is picked up by Jesus to recognize that he is the one who will administer God's wrath upon this planet. He says as part of his mission is to bring judgment upon wicked humanity. Now for centuries, and this goes back to the, even the early centuries of Christianity, people have tried to pit Jesus of the New Testament against the God of the Old Testament. In fact, there was an ancient heretic who just cut out his whole Old Testament and said, 
We don't read that because that's not the God we worship. We only worship the Jesus of the New Testament. And they try to say that Jesus, as I referenced earlier, is all about love, and the God of the Old Testament is all about anger and wrath. Well, verses like this one debunk such claims. And there's plenty of verses in the Old Testament that also show that the God of the Old Testament was a God rich in love and mercy. It is the same triune God from Genesis to Revelation. And so what we need to see here is that, yes, Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is about the redemption of sinners, but part of his mission also includes judgment, and we can't forget that. They are both Judgment and salvation are both part of God's plan. He has marked them out. And notice that Jesus is not saying this reluctantly. Like, oh, by the way, you know, I, I got to administer some judgment. I'm sorry, but I, I just want to, you know, he's not, he's not apologizing for that fact. In fact, he's eager that it would happen. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. He wishes it had already begun. There's a sense in which there's a holy impatience by Jesus that sinners would ultimately receive their just retribution. How can gentle Jesus say something such as this, right? It's because of God's plan and God's character. In God's character, he is holy, which means he, can't, he is too pure to look upon wickedness, to look upon evil. He cannot withstand that. It cannot be in his presence. He must judge wickedness. He must, must punish it. What you see throughout the Old Testament, again, Adam and Eve, they sinned, and God promised judgment. We see the flood, a judgment on sin, a reminder to all of humanity that there is a God in heaven who judges the sin of man. God cannot allow evil to go unpunished. God, the judge of the universe, if he were to have wicked people in his courtroom and allow them to go free without being punished, that would not be a good judge. A judge who allows a murderer to go free with no punishment is not a good judge. That's a wicked judge. God must punish sin. Mankind was doomed to die because of their sin ever since Adam's sin in the garden. And so Jesus announces here that he's the administrator of God's judgment. Now we know that when he came to earth, as recorded in the Gospels, he did not bring any such fire upon the earth. But we know there will come a day that he will bring such fire to the earth. Revelation 19 describes his return to the earth in judgment to judge his enemies. But before he gets there, before he can accomplish verse 49, there's something in verse 50 that he must do. Look at it with me. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Before he can send fire, he must be baptized. And you go, wait, weren't you already baptized, Jesus? Didn't John the Baptist already dunk you in the Jordan River? Yes, he was. So this baptism must refer to something else. The baptism here... I believe is best understood to be a reference to his death upon the cross. A death in which he will be immersed, he'll be submerged into the wrath and judgment of God on behalf of sinners. Jesus uses this same expression of a baptism that is still future for him. Here he's saying there's a baptism that he needs to be baptized with and 
He has that same reality in Mark chapter 10, where James and John, you'll remember, go to him and say, hey, Jesus, could we uh, have a place on your right hand, your right hand, your left hand in the kingdom? And Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus says, listen, I've got a cup I've got to drink. There's a baptism I've got to go through. And are you able to endure that? Are you able to go through that? It's a rhetorical question in which he's basically telling them, you're not able to. Now, this idea of the cup and the baptism going together helps us to elucidate, to understand what's going on here. This parallelism between baptism and a cup seem to be talking about the same thing. In the Old Testament, this idea of a cup, particularly as it relates to judgment, indicates a prophetic metaphor of God's wrath, that the cup was filled with God's wrath and he'd pour it out upon his enemies. Just two examples for you. Isaiah 51 verse 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And then Jeremiah 25 verse 15 says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand the cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So this cup that Jesus says he needs to drink, that he then equates with his baptism, that is yet still future, seems to reference this time when he will drink the wrath of God from the cup of God. You'll remember that in the garden he also prayed, Father, if it be your will, remove this cup from me. A reference to the same cup of wrath that he knows he must drink. And so there upon the the cross, outside Jerusalem, Jesus suffered and died. He was hoisted up above the crowds, and he was being baptized into the wrath of God at that moment. Why God's wrath? Why did he need to be submerged into judgment? Because, friends, it was on the cross that God the Father unleashed his holy wrath upon sin for his people. Jesus bore the wrath so that his people don't have to. He stood in their place. He was their substitute. He atoned for their sins. He received all of the wrath that his people deserved. Like we said, God is a righteous judge and he must judge sin. So therefore, for you and I to receive forgiveness, our sin had to be judged somewhere. God's wrath had to be poured out on our sins somewhere. They had to be paid in some way, and they were paid upon the cross. As Jesus drank that cup of wrath for us, Jesus was crushed for his iniquities? No. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Notice also here that Jesus is in great distress until this is accomplished too. He wants both judgment upon sinners and the world as well as an anxiousness for his own mission to take on judgment for his own people. He says, I am in, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus knew that he came to earth not only to bring judgment but also to, to suffer for his people and he, and he wants that to happen. He knew that he must suffer 
Luke chapter 9, verse 51 says he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He knew he was headed to, to the cross and he needed to go there and he was determined to do so. And here he says he's in great distress until it is accomplished. This word accomplished here is the Greek word tetelestai, which is the same word that Jesus exclaimed when he was upon the cross as he gave his last breath. There he trans it's translated, it is finished. In other words, you could translate this here, that Jesus says, I'm in great distress until it is finished. And then upon the cross, he said, it is finished. Another indication that what he's talking about here is the cross. And he's in great distress until the salvation of you and I was accomplished. Friends, here's the takeaway for us, is that accountability is coming for every one of us. Accountability for how we live. The Bible says that all of us, as sinners, have fallen short of the glory of God. We don't measure up to his perfect standard, and therefore we are under his wrath and will experience it when Jesus returns to judge humanity. He will kindle the fire of judgment upon this planet. And there are people who think that they're okay simply because they're nice people. They haven't done heinous crimes but friends, mark my words, good deeds and nice intentions will not save you from the wrath of God on that day. Our religious or even Christian habits, such as going to church, praying, putting money in the offering plate, they do not in and of themselves save us from judgment. They may be evidences that we are saved, but they themselves don't save. For there are no good works that will save us. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves from the wrath of God. We must throw ourselves completely upon the Savior. The only refuge for sinners is Jesus Christ himself. Only those who fully trust him will escape his wrath when he comes. Do you get this? That if you hide yourself in Jesus now, then, then your sins are atoned for and paid for on the cross through that baptism that he references. But if you refuse to do that in this life, refuse to trust him and, and believe on him exclusively for your salvation, for your eternity, then there's judgment that awaits. It is certain there is a fire that will be kindled. Don't, so don't be mistaken. Accountability is coming. Now for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have trusted in his name, we have no fear of that fire. We have no fear of that judgment because Romans 8.1 says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are enveloped into Christ. We are in him, friends, and we are safe in him. We can rest and rejoice in his finished work this morning. We don't need to fret about our eternal security, about whether we might receive the wrath because Jesus drank it all for us. And nothing you could do could ever convince God to reverse his promise to you. So the first duty that I believe Christ's words exhort us to is to remember that accountability is coming. The second duty that his words exhort us to is to realize that division is here. Realize division is here. Verses 51 to 53. Because of future judgment, there are two groups of people as we've been speaking of, those who've trusted in Jesus and those who have not. And Jesus highlights that division within humanity here in verses 51 through 53. 
He asked, verse 51, look at it. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Now stop right there. If he had paused just a moment and allowed the disciples to answer, what do you think they would have said? I mean, there would have been a strong inclination to say, well, yeah, I, I, I think so. <laughs> I, I mean, isn't that what the prophets prophesied? Isn't that what was said about this Messiah? I mean, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says that the Messiah is going to be the Prince of Peace. I mean, Psalm 72, Solomon wrote that in the days of Israel's future king, that peace would abound. And, and, and wait, didn't at your birth, Jesus, didn't the angels sing a song that said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased? And didn't John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, declare that Jesus would, quote, guide our feet, our feet into the path of peace? Isn't this what the Messiah is supposed to do, is lead us into peace? So then, why isn't it contradictory for Jesus to say, no, I tell you, I did not. In other words, I didn't come to bring peace, but rather division. It's not contradictory because, as we've seen, Jesus' mission includes both the work of salvation and judgment. And that work is spread out between his two comings. His first coming recorded here in the Gospels in the first century A.D. and a second coming that is still future. It is true that as the Messiah, he will bring peace to the earth, but it won't be peace for everyone. That's what he's getting at. It's not peace for everyone. It will only be peace for those who have feared the Lord and trusted in Christ. Therefore now, before that, that peace upon the earth is inaugurated and set up upon this planet, there is division between those who believe and those who do not. And note that this division is not found primarily between nations, between ethnic groups, or even between families. Notice the division that he says is between individuals. Verse 52, for from now on, in one house, there will be divided, five divided, three against two, and two against three. The household here, as he goes on to describe, includes a father and a mother, an unmarried daughter, and a married son and his wife. So the daughter-in-law that's mentioned here. The son, having married, would bring his wife to come and live with the family. And so they're saying here within this household, there's even division within the household. And so Jesus is saying that his message and who he is, is comes and, and, and divides between individuals. That even in a, in a tight-knit home, there can be division. Some will believe and some will not. Sometimes this results in hostility between the two opposing viewpoints, but it doesn't have to. Just because there's division in terms of faith, division in terms of spiritual destiny, doesn't mean that the believers and unbelievers are suddenly at each other's throats. But that can happen. There can be an animosity that is expressed. I think this reality that Jesus mentions here about division is a refutation of the modern idea that all roads lead to God. That simply... Everyone's beliefs are essentially the same, and however they want to make their way up the mountain is just fine because we're all going to end up in the same place. And Jesus says, no. There is a division that cuts through the middle of humanity between those who trust in Christ and those who do not. 
Now, this is not a guarantee that every household is going to be divided, that every household is going to have division between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and so forth. It's simply stating the simple fact that salvation does not come to families as a group. Salvation comes to individuals. And therefore, it's required that every person trusts and obey in Christ themselves. I know that this is the, the sobering reality that, that many of us have experienced. That there can be those within our own house that don't believe. They don't trust in Christ. They sat under your instruction. They heard the same teaching. But they do not now believe. And although our hearts grieve over those who do not believe... We see that this reality was foreseen by Christ, even in these verses. That each person is responsible before the Lord to believe. That we as parents do our job to be faithful for him to before the Lord to present the gospel and train our children in the Lord. And it's up to our children to trust and to believe on their own. We can't do it for them. But parents, I just say that if you have a child who is not trusting the Lord to not lose heart. The end of the story has not been written. The Lord is continuing at work, continue to trust him, believe in him, and cry out to him that he would work in their hearts and lives. We do not know if this division will last all their life. We pray that they would turn before that time. So this text here prompts us to remember that accountability is coming and to realize that the vision is already here. But the third duty that it prompts of us is, number three, recognize to recognize what God is doing today. We must recognize what God is at work doing. Verses 54 through 56. Jesus, in verse 54, moves to criticize his audience. He says to the crowds, verse 54, when you see a cloud rise in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? You see, the Jews of ancient times, as well as the Jews of today, know how to interpret the weather fairly simply there in Israel as it is bordered on the west with the Mediterranean Sea, and then there is pretty much desert all the way around Israel. And so as they, if they see a cloud in the west, that means it's building over the Mediterranean Sea, it's collecting water, and it's going to be coming on shore and be giving them some rain, which Jesus mentions here. They know when they see a cloud that it's going to bring rain. And likewise, when they feel the warm wind that is sweeping through from the south, they know that this is going to result in a heat wave. There's going to be that wilting, scorching, dry heat. Jesus then pivots off of this forecasting ability of the Jews and criticizes them. Verse 56, he says, you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? These Jews, the, the, the present generation, had a fundamental problem. They knew how to discern earthly signs, but not heavenly ones. 
They knew how to interpret the present meteorological situation, but not the soteriological one. They knew how to be concerned for their bodies, but not their souls. They had physical sight, but they lacked spiritual vision. So Jesus reprimands them because they failed to discern what was the most important. They failed to see what God was doing directly in their midst. They should have had their eyes open. They should have seen it. They didn't. Now their time, when Jesus walked the earth, was arguably the most important time in history. Right When the Son of God took on human flesh and walked among us, walked upon this earth. This is the time when the nation should have been throwing a feast for their king, when they should have been bowing down in repentance because the creator was among them. They should have been falling in line behind Jesus, pledging their allegiance to him alone. If they would have, had, would have had eyes to see, they would have realized what an amazing time it was. Jesus had shown the nation that he was God's chosen man. He was the spirit-anointed Messiah. I mean, think of all the things that they received to highlight how special Jesus was. I mean, Jesus had a guy announcing his arrival before he was even there. He had, got, he had John the Baptist, a forerunner, going through the nation and announcing to everybody, hey, he's coming, get ready. And then Jesus shows up. And he continues to wow through all of his miracles. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He walks on water. And all of this in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that these people knew that, that there would be one who would do this, and here he is doing them. In addition to that, he taught like no one else taught. When he opened his mouth and taught the oracles of God, he spoke with authority. He didn't speak like the other teachers did, citing this rabbi and that rabbi. He simply declared what was the will of God, and he called people to it. The people should have known that this was a special time. He was God's lone representative. And yet, what did the people and their leaders do when they saw all of this and heard all of it? They said he's in league with Satan. Oh, he must be empowered by Beelzebub. Some called him crazy. He's out of his mind. He was rejected. He was ignored. Israel did not believe that there was really anything significant happening. Sure, they liked all of the free bread. They liked their, their people being healed. That's great. But they didn't understand fundamentally what was going on and what they needed to do to respond to it. They thought it was interesting. They thought it was tantalizing. But they didn't think it was important. And so Jesus says they did not interpret the times rightly. They failed to see the arrival of the Son of God. And the consequences for failing to see that are catastrophic. As we've already said, there will be future fire of God's wrath from those who don't turn from this error. One commentator said to misread this spiritual weather is more dangerous than missing a hurricane. We know how devastating a hurricane can be. And if we don't anticipate it rightly, the devastation that it brings. But spiritually speaking, if we don't interpret the spiritual weather of who Jesus is and what he came to do and what the obligations it places upon our lives, it's going to be more devastating than anything upon this earth. 
Jesus' question was specifically pointed at that present generation of Israelites, but it reminds us that a similar phenomenon can happen today. It's possible for people to be perceptive of of our times and about life on this planet, life in this world, be knowledgeable and smart and genius about so many things, and yet miss that which is most important. I think of a man like Stephen Hawking, a genius in many ways, discerning radiation emitted by black holes, and yet he could not discern the need of the times to repent of his sins and trust in Christ. I think of a man like Winston Churchill, the discernment that he had to discern the need of the times to lead the free world against Nazi Germany, and yet didn't, wasn't able to discern the times to recognize that he needed to place his faith in Christ alone. As it is true with these smart men, so it is with the rest of humanity. That we can become wise in many different things upon this earth. We can become experts in our field. We can do many great things. But friends, we've got to understand what is most important. We need to interpret what is most important in our day, what God is doing today. We need to know that God has made himself clearly known through creation. Romans 1 tells us that everybody knows that there is a creator God. He has made his invisible attributes known. And yet mankind, in their unbelief, suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. In order to discern the times rightly, we need to realize that as humanity, we have committed adultery, spiritual adultery and idolatry. We've Worship the created things rather than the creator. And so therefore, God calls all people everywhere to repent, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, they may have life in his name. God wants to see people turn to his son and find life. That's what God is doing today. That is what God is wanting people to discern. And that is what our task is to tell the world. We must help people to discern the present time of what God is doing so that they don't miss it like these Jews did, so that they don't face the same catastrophic consequences when Christ returns with fire. Friends, we need to see that we ourselves are discerning the time rightly. For all the occupations that we have, for all the hobbies that we have, for all the things that we love to do, we need to make sure that those things don't take Priority in our hearts and lives. Christ is to reign supreme. Christ is to be our first priority. We live our lives as pilgrims through this world as we pass through. Yes, we can be about many great things. God gave us this whole world to enjoy. We're not aesthetics where we we cast off all the delights of this world and just simply hunker down in prayer and fasting and that's all we do. No, we enjoy God's world, but we keep Christ first in our hearts. We're discerning the time rightly. Folks, our, our friends, our neighbors, our families need our help to see this because accountability is coming. And therefore, we need to reconcile with God now. And that's our final point this morning that we get from this text is that the fourth duty is to reconcile with God now. Verses 57 through 59. Jesus says, He ended 56 with a question. He starts 57 with a question. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? He says, why are you not 
figuring out what is the right thing for you to do. It seems like, Israel, you can't discern, you can't figure out what your next step is supposed to be. You can't figure out the righteous behavior that you are supposed to be exhibiting. You're coming up with the wrong conclusions. And so he gives this illustration, a, a, a scenario, you might call it. It's not quite a parable. Parables are often given in the, in the third person. A man did this and that. This is speaking to the audience with the second person, you. And so that what, by using the second person, he draws in his audience there that day, and he draws in us too, the readers, to recognize that we need to see ourselves in this scenario too. The scene is, is one in which a man owes some money. And because we are, uh, we're late on a payment, the lender is taking us to court in order to obtain this from us. It says, verse 58, as you go with your accuser or your plaintiff or your opponent before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus states the obvious that it's better to settle out of court than it is to go through the court proceedings to receive the judgment upon your head for not paying rightly and then to be sent to debtor's prison in which you're then forced to repay there while you're in prison. I believe because of the context, again, that we've been looking at, is that this whole chapter mentions this final reckoning, this final judgment, that this here is not so much an advice of what we should do in our personal affairs, but this is more encouraging us to settle our account with God before it's too late. This same illustration is used in Matthew chapter 5, in which he's talking about interpersonal relationships. I think it has more of that application wisdom for, for those interpersonal relationships there. Here, in the context, he's been talking about judgment. He's been talking about accountability. And so I believe that the way he's using it here is in that same way. That he's saying that his audience needs to recognize that they have a debt before God and that they need to settle that debt with God before it's too late. Jesus emphasizes, notice verse 59, I tell you. Again, he's making an emphatic statement. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. He's emphasizing that there's not going to be a way to repay this. Debtor's prison was an awful place because it required the family to pay back what was owed. The one in prison was unable to work and they languished there. It was often a place in which the hope of getting out was very, very slim. And so Jesus, emphasizing that you're not going to get out until you pay the last penny, seems to indicate that he, the impossibility of ever getting out. And so Jesus brings it back to where he began. Accountability is coming. The Jews will have to answer for how they have responded to Jesus and his ministry. They will have to stand before God, the judge, and give an account. And so Jesus urges them to reconcile with their accuser, to reconcile with God before it's too late. I'm sure you can understand the application for us today. Friends, this is a timely warning for us. Now, we do not have Jesus walking in our midst as they did in the first century, but we have even more evidence of who Jesus is and what he did that demands 
that we would repent and believe in him. Because post this event, Jesus went to the cross and he was buried and then he rose again on the third day and he ascended to heaven and now he is there as the risen Lord demanding the, the allegiance of the world. And so his death, burial, and resurrection stands above all of humanity as a testimony of his preeminence. God's plan for the world is being enacted through Jesus. And if you want to get on the right side of history, on God's side, then you must side with Christ and you must settle with your creator today before it's too late. Just like Jesus' scenario here indicates, we are all debtors to God. Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Our sins are debts to God. Debts that we cannot pay, which is why we ask for forgiveness in Jesus' name. We will all stand in the heavenly courtroom to give an account for our lives. God will be both the judge on the stand as well as the plaintiff, the one bringing the charge against us. He knows all that we've ever done. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows all things that we have done, past, present, future. And he's going to bring all those things to bear on that judgment day. No one can escape the gaze of the Almighty. No one can hide anything from him. It's the height of folly to think that God doesn't see or that God doesn't care. So friends, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, then you are still at enmity with God. But the good news is that there is still time to settle the account with your creator. There is still time to make it right, to reconcile with God. And the only way to be reconciled with God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's the only way to God. And we must trust him because by his sacrifice, as we said, your sins are atoned for at the cross. Because Jesus bore the wrath for our sin, our sins are not counted against us anymore because there in the courtroom, if we have trusted in Christ and God the plaintiff comes forward and said, this man is guilty of all these sins, then Jesus stepped forward and says, I, I paid for those. And so as Christ's followers, we have the confidence to know that when we stand before God the judge, we are considered blameless because when our record is pulled out, instead of our sins being listed, Jesus' righteous deeds are listed on our behalf. They're credited to us. 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21 captures it when it says this. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, the Father, made him the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin goes to him, his righteousness comes to us, and we are safe forevermore. And so we end this morning reflecting on the kindness and the grace of our Savior. May that bring you comfort this morning to recognize that we are safe in him. Let's bow together. Oh, Father, we thank you for the assurance that Christ indeed went to the cross, that he was sacrificed on our behalf, that he went through that baptism he experienced the unleashing of God's wrath upon us. Oh, Father, may we never lose sight of the cross. 
May we never fail to see your love, your kindness, and your grace. That you would save sinners such as us. This gospel truth, Father, may it thrill our hearts each and every day. And I pray that you would help even this text this morning to remind us of that. And I pray for those, Lord, that are listening that have not been reconciled with you. I pray that you would please prompt their hearts to do that today. And may you provide hope and salvation to them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.